Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Bullshift the Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk every week about how behavioral finance can impact your financial decision making and about how the financial services industry shifts your attention to make you feel more bullish. My name is John DeGuy. I'm the host of the podcast and the author of the book, Bullshift. My guest this week is Corrine Soule. Corrine's been an award-winning portfolio manager and a speaker who discusses behavioral finance and effective practice management, just like I do. Uh, I'm in many ways uh, surprised that I hadn't come across Corrine before now. Uh, She joins us uh, today from uh, from her office in British Columbia, and I want to welcome you, Corrine. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. The first thing that I want to do in that I, that I neglected to do in the introduction was to also point out that you are the author of a book called The Unbiased Investor. You've got a copy there behind you, and it's uh, it's wonderful. I've I've had a chance to skim it. Uh, maybe you can hold it up for the people at home so they can see what it is that uh, they should be looking for if they <laughs> head over to Amazon.com or head over to a bookstore. So is. here is the uh, self-promotion here. And um, yeah, it's available uh, at your favorite bookstore. Perfect. Thank you so much. Let's begin by having you sort of tell your story. I'm wondering if you could tell the people at home about how you got into finance and specifically how you gained the interest in behavioral economics and integrating that into the advice you give. Well, yeah, okay, that's a that's a bit of a long story. We'll make it a short one. Um, so I have been practicing for uh, gosh, almost thirty, a little past thirty years. And when I um, like over all these uh, various market events that have happened over the decades, um, I just started to see a lot of uh, similarities in the way people were behaving. So what I mean by that is like uh, my own clients were, um, you know, would be the same you know, half a dozen handful of people that would call right at the bottom of the market and say, green guy, get me out. I can't sleep. I can't tolerate the volatility. And they would say the same reasons. Um, you know, I, um, I can get in later uh, when things calm down. I can't sleep at night. I can't stomach things, you know, the same kinds of excuses. So uh, those were some of the more obvious ones, but then there was more nuanced uh, similarities as well that I saw over, um, over, uh, you know, managing people's money. And some of them were related to their level of wealth. Some of them were related to uh, their background. Um, But I just saw these sort of pockets. Um, And in fact, this morning, I was uh, talking with a a client, and she came up with a really cool um, uh, phrase that she calls herself a, uh, she calls it uh, financial anorexia. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and what she means by it is that she just cannot stand to see her her wealth deplete and she just has this kind of panic around it and i was like oh my gosh you know that's such a love the term and i've seen it in in certain groups of people so anyway all to say that these 
you know, sort of pockets of people and people's behavior is consistent and predictable in many ways. And that's why um, I, I became really keenly interested in um, the work of Daniel Kahneman and uh, Thaler and Schiller and, and these kinds of thinkers through the CFA Institute uh, primarily. And then it sort of caught wildfire from there and went down the rabbit hole. Um, and I just saw so many reasons to integrate it into my practice uh, to reduce bias and the successes uh, that come with that. I was recently uh, happy to be in an audience where you were the main presenter, and I, I found your presentation to be quite fascinating. And one of the things that you talked about were what you call the three motivations uh, in terms of uh, what people, uh, how make people make decisions, and which basically how people interpret the world around them, how they can control risk or at least try to, and and their natural propensity to want to be right. Could you comment on those things, please? Just in terms of the way people, what what gets people out of bed and what motivates them, even if they don't know it and even if they don't want to admit it. <laughs> yeah, you know, so you know, in, in studying behavioral finance, and I'm sure you've come across this as well. There's a bevy. There's like a a laundry list of various biases that have been quantified and qualified. And, um, and, and as I was working with those uh, various, you know, anchoring or um, recency bias or representativeness, I mean, there's, there's so many of these definitions, um, but they don't really, they're not really practical, first of all. I mean, if you're uh, just a, an investor and, uh, or even a practitioner, like, how do you really approach representativeness? Like, you know, it seems very segmented. And so as I started working with these, I realized that they're all interrelated and that really you can batch them into these three categories, how we try to make sense of the world and our, the way that our brains process information, then how we try to control risk and um, usually at the wrong time and <laughs> in the wrong ways, and then our propensity to want to be right um, and how you know we can even literally reframe an entire uh, set of circumstances uh, in order to feel better about our decisions. You know, um, um, so so I I kind of reframed all of those various individual. Uh, behavioral biases into those three categories to make it more usable and more practical, more understandable. Oh, I want to talk for a little bit more about that last one. People always want to be right. Uh, there, there's an old saying that uh, one of my mentors used to use was people don't resist their own ideas. And so if it's your idea, you, you want it to be right. And you're sort of rooting for uh, for the idea, not on its merits, but so much, but because you're the author of the idea, and as a result, you you become wedded, and and you start getting into the escalation of commitment and that sort of thing because you just want to be right. There's there's a certain amount of identity tied into it. I wonder, do you do you think um, a, a large percentage of investors are like that? Because many investors are also, I don't know, and they come to an advisor and they just say, you do it. And, and they don't have any 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 personal commitment other than perhaps their commitment that they've chosen the right advisor. Well, fair enough. And, you know, it, it, I think that 100% of people suffer from wanting to be right, 100%. And, um, you know, you think about cognitive dissonance um, and, and, you know, Aesop's fable, you know, and just to give a, you know, an old school, um, uh, example, you know, the fox that 
wants to get the grape and the grapes that are too far away. He ultimately says, oh, well, the convinces himself that the grapes aren't uh, any good anyway. So kind of making yourself feel uh, better about your decisions. So we match our behavior, our the execution of our behavior. Um, we, we literally change our thoughts about something and convince ourselves that our behavior is the right thing that we're doing. So I, I, I come to I've come to think about that in a different way, though. Um, you know, when people are invested in the market and they're concerned or they're anxious or they're, you know, they, they generate these feelings that cause, um, you know, sort of an internal distress. And all we're really trying to do is calm that distress, you know, physiologically. So we make decisions around that. That's part of the, you know, I can't sleep at night or what have you. And, um, and, and that's what I think about when I, when I say, you know, that we want to be right, we will reframe the whole scenario. And so when it comes to investing, some of the things that can happen is, you know, you will pull out when it's volatile or, you know, similarly, uh, you know, you don't invest, um, staying cash too long because you don't know, but you have a, a whole bunch of reasons as to why you're making these choices, even though it's damaging your financial uh, objectives. So, you know, and your long-term, you know, if everybody in a perfect world, I think uh, you would understand what your values are and make long-term plans and stick to those plans. But what happens is behavior gets in the way and causes us to shorten our time horizon suddenly. And volatility makes you stop contributing, or it makes you not want to invest or um, makes you sell something, buy something else, you know, something else that's maybe looks more successful in the moment and um, shortens your time horizon uh, suddenly and inefficiently. Decisions are the sort of thing that are with us every day. We all make decisions what to have for breakfast and, you know, what to wear to work and, and, uh, and some things are rather more consequential. But one of the other things that you talk about in your book is uh, steps to limit judgment errors when making decisions. And I'm wondering if you can share some of those tips for us, please. Yeah. So, um, you know, going back to those sort of three central themes of, you know, how we understand the world, how we try to control risk and how um, we want to be right. And we reframe to our detriment sometimes. Um, so in any of these circumstances, you know, if you my goal in life is to promote the idea that we should have a good understanding first of who we are and what we come tooled with and what our objectives are and what our hopes and desires and dreams are. Once you determine that, you can make long-term decisions. So what I'm trying to do is mitigate the short-term transactional decisions that we do on the fly. Those are historically and typically um, fraught with all kinds of bias because you know, you're, you're caught up in, in a momentary uh, decision-making process, which um, if we can eliminate those, that would be great. And there's, um, you know, I also advocate for making fewer decisions. The less, de <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, if you make fewer decisions, you uh, reduce naturally the uh, opportunity for making errors because you're making fewer decisions. So, you know, the, the chicken and egg thing is, well, how do you make fewer decisions? Well, you make better ones. Well, how do you make better ones? You make ones that are really linked to where you want to be at that future date and not get caught up in that transactional process. 
which leads to, for instance, making monthly contributions uh, to an RSP or a TFSA rather than annual ones and making things automatic. As soon as you can make things automatic, it allows you to take advantage of dollar cost averaging, but it also allows you the, the psychological uh, clearance. It, it, it gets it out of your head about, oh, I have to save up this $18,000 to put into my uh, RSP in the first 60 days of the year, it's no, no, I'm going to put in $1,500 a month for the next 12 months, and it's just going to happen. And my contribution will have been made by the time the deadline comes, and it's done. And as long as you're diversified and right thinking your principal and your division of assets along the way, everything should logically follow from that. You're right on, John. Like, you know, you're, you're kind of taking yourself out of the equation. You're setting yourself up for success. And and who wouldn't, frankly, rather go golfing or uh, sailing around the world or whatever your passions are, rather than worrying and stressing about, you know, your contributions or how you feel about uh, your financial affairs? Can you talk also a little bit about making decisions based on your personal values? That uh, When you talk about that, are you talking about uh, impact investing or ESG investing, or are you just talking about having a, a value of being a more... Uh, risk-seeking investor and therefore maybe tilting towards small cap value? Or or what, what exactly do you mean when you ma make investments that are consistent with your own value? Well, I'm, I'm meaning personal values, not like the value, like a valuation of a company, first of all. Um, but secondly, um, so in my book, I, I, I tried to distill you know, a starting point, um, there's eight questions that help people to get that ball rolling. So I wanted to make that really approachable. But values, you know, you can define them in any way that makes sense to you. And everybody is going to have their own sense of what's important, what their own goals are, what their, um, you know, skills are, for example, like say, for example, you, um, you have been working in a union for years, uh, you might have skills around understanding pensions really well. Like, you know, they can, these skills can be, uh, come from any part of your life. It could, doesn't have to be just formal education, but it could, um, you know, come from just, um, you know, something your parents taught you. Um, obviously, uh, you know, some people are more comfortable investing for themselves, whereas other people really need to have, you know, that prevention, uh, that professional intervention so that they can have, you know, a reliable outcome, um, in their, in their decision-making, you know, <clears throat> you know, it's changing tax laws and changing investment landscapes and all of those kinds of things that come into play. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, that's an important component as well. A lot of that comes down to identity and the way you self-identify. Uh, your bias is, is very much in, uh, re related to the way you see yourself. I, I've heard it, uh, I've read in the past that people's, that people's identity should be more like your clothes that you can change if you don't like them rather than like tattoos because for some people an identity yeah. is a sort of, this is who I am and they make it indelible and they make it uh, irrevocable. And this, you know, this is absolutely what I'm going to be. And they're not flexible enough to think about, well, maybe I can be someone who likes this other thing as well. Well, yeah, like maybe uh, green looks really good on you, you know, <laughs> and you hadn't really considered it before. Right. But, you know, there is, there is one thing though, that um, is surprisingly uh, not as immutable as you think it is. And that is uh, your risk, your risk. And um, so we typically like to think that risk, uh, like you're, a, we categorize people, I'm a low risk person, I'm a high risk person. And for the most part, you know, that is um, 
comfortable categories in order to guide investment decisions and financial decisions of all kinds. But you should be aware, and most people don't realize this, your risk and your natural tendency to take um, excess risk or be like pull back uh, significantly beyond what your normal risk category might be is directly related, directly related to what happened to you last. So what I mean by that, as a quick example, uh, you might have heard of the house money effect. I'm sure you have. <laughs> um, and so picture this, you know, uh, you're sitting at the um, at the craps table in Las Vegas and you've got your, I don't know, whatever your budget is, $100, $1,000, whatever yours is. And you, you, you go with your chips and you're playing the round and you win big like right away. And then you take your original, you know, money, put it in your pocket for, you know, that uh, you take your, your original money off the table. And the winnings we don't identify as ours, certainly not right away. And so uh, you know, people are have a tendency to take additional risk with that that they normally wouldn't take with, you know, the money in the pocket, right, that you came with. So this house money effect is is kind of funny because, you know, money is fungible. And you could just as easily, you know, gamble it all away as pay off your mortgage. So, but we, you know, that that would be an unusual thing to do, right? I'm wondering if you could maybe help us with maybe just one or two or at the most three little hacks that you can come up with to help people to self-identify their own bias, to see bias in their own behavior, and then to make better decisions as a result of that self-assessment. Can you, is that even possible? Can you think of something? Well, um, there's a lot of biases and you would, well, I'm, I, I know you've done a lot of work in this area, but um, just even for a lay person to just take a look at, you know, one day in their life. Um, like, for example, I had a conversation with a client um, this morning who I had a lot of meetings this morning. <laughs> um, and he says, oh, uh, I was reading in the newspaper, um, newspaper. It's it's an online newspaper now, but um, and it's it's called um, uh, it's a it's a the dogs stars and dogs. I'm sure you've heard of it. Yeah. So and he says, oh, they they say that Dollarama is a star and it's going to go up and blah 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 blah. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And he says, yeah, you know, I I think that they're doing a great business and. I go to Dollarama all the time, and um, therefore, I think we should put it in the investment portfolio. And I, I said, you know, I, I, I hear you, but this, this is a prime example of how people fall into bias all the time. And just because a business is a good business doesn't mean it's a good investment. So it could be trading at ridiculously high multiples because it's a good business and everybody's jumped on board and pushed the share price up uh, to astronomical values um, based on expected growth. Um, but that may not necessarily transpire and it may not be a suitable investment for your objectives. So just because a business uh, is something that you subscribe to or it's doing what you ascertain to be good service or good products or what have you, it doesn't mean that it's a good investment. So that's where that analytical piece has to come in and the awareness, like you point out, of biases. So let's see, um, how could you easily 
I, I think the familiarity of the biases themselves <laughs> are are necessary in order to identify them for sure. Um, and so that's where you, you know having some resources at hand is a good idea. Okay, so here's here's an idea. I know that you you you've advocated this in the in the past, and that's the use of checklists. If if whether you're working on your own as a do-it-yourself investor or with a, with an advisor or a portfolio manager, uh, you could have someone else administer the checklist, or or you can uh, do it yourself. But um, perhaps you could give us some examples of the sorts of things that you would put on a checklist to help you to self-identify monitor your own behavior and then double back it's 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 ironic we're we're uh, we're now uh releasing the podcast in january and everyone's making a new year's resolution i always marvel at how few people check to see how they did with their 2023 resolutions as 2023 rolls to a close everyone's all you know full of energy uh and and good intentions in january but who closes the feedback loop and actually checks in at the end of the year see how successful they were in actually following through on the things that they committed to so very earnestly 12 months previously. Well, and uh, I think you'll notice this bias. Um, you know, if you did really well, you are going to check it more uh, closely uh -huh. than if you didn't. So um, the, that's a natural tendency uh, to want to blush away. Uh, and there's that reframing thing, wanting to be right. Uh, you blush away the past things that that hadn't really worked out and you excuse yourself and uh, and then you uh, celebrate the things that you did do well. And that's just reaffirming and 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 that's nurturing that feeling, that that physiological feeling of happiness and and success and uh, pressing away um, those feelings of discomfort. So uh, you're right on with that. So um, checklists like um, I. Sitting down and, and building the checklist is, I think, the most critical part rather than, um, you know, it's almost secondary to the goals. Um, and checklists can be something, and, and you mentioned automation earlier. Uh, automation is brilliant. Take yourself out of the equation. And I always say um, one of the things you should, that's critical to investment, uh, you know, success long, long term is, uh, stop checking the souffle. Like, you know, if you set it up to be successful, whether, you know, you've talked about dollar cost averaging or, you know, um, if you've got an active management uh, mandate with a professional or you're simply invested in uh, a broad index that's going to do the work for you in a passive way, which I also advocate for, um, stop checking the souffle. Like, uh, you know, because all it does is invoke emotion invoke those short-term transactional decision-making uh, processes that blow you up that uh, you know the more transactions you make in your portfolio the more uh, opportunity uh, there is for errors in judgment trading transaction costs uh, on and on and on so um, checklists are brilliant because they help you um, stick to the knitting I, I think that's the most brilliant way to put it the carpenter's rule has always been measured twice, cut once, and you know as long as you are are certain in what your what your objective is at the outset, then as long as you're careful, you're you're fine. And the other the other line that people hear all the time is that uh, uh, a portfolio is like a bar of soap. The more you touch it, the smaller it gets. And so if you can keep your hands <laughs> off it, uh, it, it, you'll you'll do well to to simply uh, um, 
resist the temptation to check the souffle. And, and I have to tell you, I've never heard check the souffle before today. So thank you for that little nugget because I'm going to use it going forward if you don't mind. That's uh, that's wonderful. Yeah. All right, Corinne, that's we're we got to wrap this up here. So I'm wondering if we could just get to the end here. Uh, the uh, the last little bit is. Um, where I always ask my people to, to comment on on two things. And the first is something I call that's bullshit. Is there something in the financial services industry that perhaps makes people too optimistic and that that you would uh, that you think is something that could be done differently and hopefully better? What, what, what would that be if that was up to you? Well, I've been around this uh, this business for for a long time, um, and I'm also involved um, sort of at a national level on the board of directors of CFA Societies Canada. And that's an advocacy uh, organization for investment integrity across the country uh, for all investors. Um, and um, we get involved in regulatory business and things like that, too. So I have a pretty good overview of, um, you know, I, I, that's that's the perspective I'm coming from. And um, I think it's really confusing to the end user of professional services in this business. It, it, it's not to the standard of, you know, like accounting, accountants, you know, there's a, there's a barrier to entry. There's a, it's a profession and like, it's a true profession. Whereas in the investment industry, there's like a whole uh, gamut of various uh, qualifications and, um, you know, uh, ways you could participate in this. And I think it's really confusing. I and and I would prefer. So, am I allowed to give my <laughs> my recipe for a solution here? Yes, yes, you are. Okay, so let's let's uh, let's let's use that then as the uh, that's the that's bullshit part. Let's move qu quickly then to the uh, to the solution part, which is shift happens. It was up to you. How would you deal with the lack of consistent professional designations and and uh, consumer awareness of, of who's who and what's what in the financial services industry? Well, if I was uh, elected king of uh, queen of uh, <laughs> this process, I, I would really like to see uh, the investment industry be uh, a true profession. So, um, you know, I'm, I, I, I think highly of the CFA uh, program and its worldwide uh, recognition and uh, quality for um, uh, ethics and integrity and I mean, gosh, the, the program is pretty robust. I, I would like to see something of that ilk uh, that uh, all investment professionals that practice um, would would reach. Um, in the same way in the financial planning, the CFP designation is uh, really the, the cream of the crop. There's other ones out there, I, I realize. Um, but if there could be an integration uh, where, and maybe all the different, you know, bodies that produce um, these, uh, you know, um, licensing could come together and have something that's a higher level of uh, consistently applied uh, designation for uh, practicing in Canada. I think that would really elevate the uh, professionalism and produce better results for investors uh, at large and reduce a lot of the ambiguity. You're a woman after my heart. My first book, The Professional Financial Advisor, talked about precisely that, about how we need to, to be a profession as, as advice givers in Canada. And, and for me, I've been doing volunteer work very similarly with, uh, with FP Canada with regard to the CFP designation. So again, it seems as though we follow these parallel paths, and it's only <laughs> in uh, late 2023 and early 2024 that we've actually sort of intersected and gotten to, uh, to know each other. So it's been a real pleasure. Corrine, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so glad you could make it. It's such a pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. 
John DeGuey is a portfolio manager in Toronto and the author of the book Bullshift, How Optimism Bias Threatens Your Finances. Bullshift is available online and in bookstores everywhere. The opinions expressed in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Bullshift, the podcast, is produced by TalkShoe, a division of IOTUM. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.